Hi, my name is Professor Joshua Lingle, and we're back uh, talking about the content of the Quran and continuing on with our, our lectures here in this session on the content of the Quran. We now, uh, we now know how Muslims say the Quran actually came to be. And we'll later look at the historical evidence to see if we actually agree with them. But for now, let's look at what the Quran teaches. Um, an obvious way to get an idea of what a book is about is to read how it begins. So the Quran, it opens like this. Quote, in the name of Allah, the merciful, the compassionate, praise belongs to Allah, the Lord of all being the all-merciful, the all-compassionate, the master of the day of judgment. The only we serve, to thee alone we pray for succor. Guide us in the straight path, the path of those whom thou hast blessed, and not of those of whom thou art wrathful, nor of those who are astray. This opening to the Quran is called the Fatiha in Arabic. Based on the Fatiha, we gain an understanding of the content and the message of the Quran, and within the Quran, we find three actors. First, there is the Muslim God, Allah. And you can read about Allah in Surah 3, Ayah 109. It says, quote, Allah belongs all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth, and all that matters goes back for decisions to Allah, end quote. Secondly, you'll meet the friends of Allah. These are the people who obeyed his commands. Uh, a verse that refers to them is Surah 19, Ayah 60. It says, quote, Those who repent and believe in the oneness of Allah and his messenger Muhammad and work righteousness, such will enter paradise, and they will not be wronged in aught. End quote. And third, there are the enemies of Allah. Those are the ones who disobey Allah. Uh, a verse to remember here is Surah 41, Ayah 19. Quote, and remember the day of the enemies of Allah will be gathered to the fire, so they will be collected there, the first and the last, end quote. So there are the three groups of actors in the Quran, Allah, the friends of Allah, and the enemies of Allah. The Quran uses these actors to cover three major topics. Number one is the law or the Sharia. Number two are stories of previous prophets. And number three is final judgments. Before we move on, I, uh, I must mo uh, note one thing. There are references to previous prophets, in, to the Torah, to the Jewish scriptures. But most of the stories about these prophets are not told. Their names are just mentioned through the text. We see Abraham's name, which is mentioned and even Moses is named uh, at times, the Quran assumes that its reader will have previous biblical knowledge in order to understand who these people are and who they're speaking to. Uh, on the whole, anyone reading these without a knowledge of the Bible will find it hard to understand precisely what the book is speaking about. And when it comes to these Bible characters, they may, you know, may not know. So Allah, the Muslim God, is the central theme of the Quran. In Moses Jebenu's class uh, in Nigeria, he'll be teaching us uh, about who is Allah, and he'll be talking about that subject in a whole course 
in Mission Muslim World University that you can take uh, it, through this training program. But Allah, the Muslim God, is the central theme of the Quran. He's the Almighty, He's the All-Powerful, He's the All-Merciful, is how Muslims describe Allah. He has brought the world into being for the benefit of His creatures, and He has sent messengers to His people in the past. Uh, these messengers were to guide the people in the right way to live, and in the, the way of living most befitting to them and to Allah. He has given them the law, the Sharia, by which they should live. Uh, fourthly, uh, which has reached its perfection, the completion of Islam. And fifth, will bring about the end of the world at a time only known to Allah, and then shall be judged strictly according to their deeds. But their Allah is different than our God. You see, our God loves sinners, though he hates their sin. In John uh, 3.16, we read that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Allah of the Quran does not love the sinners. He does not love the enemies. He does not love them at all. In fact, in no place do we read that Allah loves those who are outside of his friends. Whereas in the Bible, God is love and therefore has love for not only his friends, but also for the sinners that he wishes would come into relationship with him. Other differences that we see from our understanding of God's character is this. Number one, God uh, is unknown and unknowable. Allah is unknown and unknowable in Islam. Two, Allah is not personal or spiritual. Three, Allah is not active in history in the sense and he does not come down and enter into history as Jesus did or as God did in the garden walking amongst us. Four, Allah is not holy and righteous in the sense of hating sin and separating himself from the sinners. Uh, it's, it's, it's unclear how good and evil actually interacts with Allah since he can't have those moral categories. Five, Allah is not thought of as binding himself by a covenant with man. And six, Allah is not a trinity where he's been self-disclosed in a relational way where mankind has experienced himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So within the overall uh, narrative of the Quran, you'll find that as mentioned, references to, uh, to God sending many biblical prophets the prophecies are sent to rebuke and to rightly guide the people in the Sharia and the law. What the law is is not clear, though the, the Jewish Torah is mentioned. The Torah is the Jewish uh, holy books, and it's in our Old Testament. Muslims are commanded to believe in all the true prophets of Allah without making any distinction between them. The Quran cites Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Jesus specifically as all prophets whom Allah has sent in former times. In Surah 3, Ayah 84, uh, it says, Say, O Muhammad, we believe in Allah and what has been sent down to us and what has been sent into Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob. And what has been given to Moses, Jesus, and the prophets from their Lord. We make no distinctions between one another among them. And to him, Allah, we have submitted in Islam. End quote. 
So therefore, Islam takes on over the whole entire prophetic line of the Judeo-Christian heritage. The Quran acknowledges that there were scriptures revealed to the Jews and that prophets were sent to them. We can read this in Surah 45, Ayah 16, quote, And indeed, we gave the children of Israel the scripture and and the understanding of the scriptures and its laws and the prophethood and provided them with good things and preferred them above the alamin, the mankind and the jinn of their time during that period, end quote. Many of these uh, stories of the prophets uh, follow biblical narratives to some extent, but important places, they are very different. Uh, Sometimes the stories in the Quran are are the same or similar as, as the Jewish myths and stories not found in the Torah or the Bible. So, for example, scholars call this in, the, in, the, in their academic writings, they call this biblicist traditions. They don't call it biblical traditions because it's not biblical, but they're traditions that are different stories than the stories we have in our Bible about these same prophets or what we would call patriarchs and so on. And so they call it Biblicists instead. Other stories include names which Christians and Jews did not accept as prophets. For example, do we believe that um, Adam was a prophet? Or Lot, was he a prophet? There are also Arab prophets that we maybe have never heard of, such as uh, we may not recognize the names like Sali or Hud. So though the the prophets and biblical themes are mentioned in the Quran, some really important information is missing. None of the great writing prophets, for example, Jeremiah or Isaiah, Ezekiel, are mentioned in the Quran. And there's a lack of any reference to a, a sacrifice as an integral part of the Israelite tradition. All the exhaustive instructions given to Moses in the Exodus and in Leviticus about sin and sacrifices. Uh, these are all omitted as if they never occurred. Muslims know about Solomon and that he built a temple uh, where the sacrifices to God took place, but this is never actually referenced in the Quran. And that's strange for a religion that's supposed to be part of the Judeo-Christian heritage. It's very strange. Finally, though it mentions the person of Jesus, it does not even remotely allude to his atoning work as one great sacrifice of all time to reconcile men to God. It denies the sonship of Jesus, including his crucifixion. The bulk of the prophecy and major themes of sacrifice is missing from the whole of the Quran, and its theological foundations are missing from Jewish and Christian teachings there. Yet Muslims claim that it's the final and greatest revelation to mankind, following the Torah and the Bible. So, a word of caution here. Some missionaries will, uh, will actually use certain chronic verses to point Muslims to the Bible. And the problem with, with this is that it can serve as an inconsistency if you choose to use parts of the Quran that agree with the Bible, but discount those parts that don't. So there's uh, books like The Camel Method, which we would n- not accept and, and reject within uh, our training here. But it basically relies on Quranic verses in order to kind of lead them towards, uh, towards a, a bridge, towards a biblical view. He may talk about prophets, but 
quickly go to the real stories which are in the Bible, and, and that is usually the, the, the more reliable way and honest way to interact with our Muslim friends. Be honest with your use of the Quran. Don't give a Christian reading or a Christian uh, interpretation of the Quran. Let the Muslims speak for themselves, and let us speak for ourselves. We don't like it when Muslims do it with our Bible saying Muhammad was prophesied hundreds of times throughout the Old and New Testament. We expect no less from our Muslim friends with the Bible. And again, we have God, the friends of God, and the enemies of God in these narratives. Uh, each of the prophetic stories in the Quran is presented in a formula. Uh, secular scholars have called this prophetic, uh, the, the prophetic cycle. It's important to note that the stories cannot always be found with it, all the details in order. Sometimes you have to jump around in the Quran to get to the whole story. And sometimes you have to go to the Hadith literature to get more of the details which are not found in the Quran. The prophetic star, uh, cycle starts like this. In the Quran, Allah always sends his messengers or prophets. Secondly, but almost every time the people reject both the message and the messenger. Third, as a result, God sends down his wrath in judgment. He punishes the community who has rejected his messenger. So in the end, the community is punished. God triumphs, and in the end, the prophet is vindicated. What's so interesting is to compare this formula with Muhammad's own prophetic career. He claimed to be a prophet sent from Allah, bring a message to his people in Mecca. He was rejected by the Meccans, and that's why he moved to the city of Medina. Once he had a strong following, he attacked the Meccans, which could be seen as Allah's judgment upon them. And through winning the, the fight, Muhammad was vindicated over his enemies. Almost every prophetic story in the Quran seems to mimic Muhammad's life in this way. Does that bother you? Does this seem like real history? Or does it seem like an exaggeration based on one man's life? Some have suggested that the Quran takes the name of the biblical prophets and makes them all look like Muhammad. And that, so that way, Muhammad's own career is frequently pictured in terms of this fictional, not true plotline. Combined with this constant narrative elements in the Quran is a reworking of the Abrahamic tradition in the light of Muhammad. Abraham, who predates Judaism and Christianity, is seen as a follower of the true faith. He is called, in Arabic, the Hanifiyah, uh, the, uh, the monotheist. Muhammad then comes and re revives the true religion of Abraham in pagan Mecca. And it's there where he, uh, we mentioned that the tradition says that Abraham had actually built the Kaaba. So we see Muhammad presented in the lines of these prophets. Now I presented here what appears to be clear themes in the Quran, but the themes are not so clear from the Quran alone. We actually see these themes come from the Islamic sources and the traditions in what is called the Azbab al-Nuzul literature. Azbab al-Nuzul means, for this reason, a verse was actually revealed. This statement is a literary tool used by the authors of the Islamic sources to explain the meaning of all the verses of the Quran, which you can't understand in its context. So 
here's an example in, in Surah 2, Ayah 119. We read, quote, Indeed, we sent, down, uh, sent you with the truth as a bringer of good tidings and as a warner. You will not be questioned or do not ask about the inhabitants of hell, end quote. Now, within this chapter where we find this verse, it's not really clear what this means. There's no reference exactly to who the inhabitants of hell are, but the verse does beg the question, who are the inhabitants of hell? Well, to find out the answer, we have to go to the Islamic traditions and look at the way this verse was revealed. And two different interpretations of this verse are presented in different traditions and perhaps more, but we can at least find two here. Number one, a tradition quotes that the prophet, the prophet was asking about the Jews and the verse was revealed to him about the Jews, do not inquire about the inhabitants of hell, referring to the Jews. Okay, so that's very clear, isn't it? It refers to the Jews. But a second tradition uh, uh, says it in this way. He, didn't, he interpreted the prophet said, if I only knew what happened to my parents, of course they were pagans, and so this verse was revealed to him, do not ask about the inhabitants of hell, according to Imam al-Waqidi. So now the Quran is supposed to be absolutely clear to the reader, but obviously if you go from one commentary to the next commentary, and they both disagree about who's burning in hell, then that can be very confusing. In that sense, it's not clear at all. Was it the Jews burning in hell, or was it Muhammad's parents that are burning in hell now? I want to dig deeper into Muslim beliefs about the Quran. We've looked at how the Quran was revealed and formed into a book. We've heard a little bit about how Muslims view the Quran as perfect, and also what the main themes of the Quran are. But what else do they believe about the Quran? Well, they regard the Quran, the Quran is regarded by Muslims as more than just a book. The traditions about the Quran, uh, first they hold that it is actually pre-existent. We mentioned earlier that it's uh, written on stone tablets in heaven. And the, the closest, closest example that we have to this doctrine, it's, it may not be a good one, but in Christianity, is the pre-existence of Christ as the word sent forth. Jesus is the word of God and has existed forever at the right hand of God in heaven as the Son. In Islam, the Quran is the word of Allah and has existed forever in stone tablets in heaven. So they're different, but they're you know, similar in that sense. Second, they believe that uh, the Quran intercedes for those who read it on the day of judgment. Third, some Muslims believe that it uh, heals sicknesses when they, when they read it and so on. And fourth, some Muslims believe that it can release people from the guilt of sin. Certain verses, uh, surahs and verses singled out is, uh, are, are said to have powers of different kinds of sorts. In Surah 3 is said to witness on the day of judgment for all those who read it. Other surahs are said to provide protection by angels, so that helps out. <laughs> uh, third, some surahs cause the presence of God to descend upon the reader. So the Quran is being translated and published in one of the largest publishing houses in the world. It sits in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, 
uh, on 250,000 square meters in, in Saudi Arabia. And it, uh, it's said that it will produce over 193 million copies of the Quran and Muhammad's example, the stories and books and so on, the Sunnah, by 2045. So as you can see, Muslims highly revered their book and are hoping to spread it throughout the world. They're highly motivated. Now, these beliefs uh, make it quite understandable that there would be intricate rules regarding the handling of the Quran. Muslims highly esteem their holy book. They believe that no one should touch the Quran unless they are purified according to Islamic purity laws. Uh, one example of a purity law is that a menstruating woman should not touch the Quran because she is in a state of impurity. We can read more about this in the law or the fiqh literature, the Sharia literature, called the Muatta of Imam Malik. It was the first Muslim law book written in 790 AD. And, uh, um, quote, he says, uh, it is disapproved of, uh, for someone to carry the Quran without being pure out of respect for the Quran and in order to honor it. And it quotes Surah 56, Ayah 79. Muslims often go through a series of ritual cleansings before they handle the Quran. This is called the wudu. And in this ritual, they, they wash their hands and arms and head and wipe their feet and so on. Muslims believe that the Quran is distinct and it's holier than any other book. And for that reason, <clears throat> they will not actually write on the book. They do not write in their Qurans like we may write in our Bibles. It's not to be added to or taken away. And therefore, if you write in the Quran, if you write in your Quran, your book, that can be seen as actually adding to the text. However, we find that some Muslims, especially those from the Asian con uh, context, do come back and sometimes do write in their books. And from a Western context, where they're used to uh, writing and taking notes and so on. Secondly, if you go into their schools or their homes, they will have a small ledge uh, as close to the roof as possible upon which the Quran is to be placed. When it's not being read, uh, it sits there. And this is because the Quran should obtain the highest place in the home. They'll not let any other book lay on top of it, and it's to be revered. Thirdly, they'll never let a Quran touch their feet, and for the same reason, they'll never lay a Quran directly on the floor. Often they'll have uh, wooden stands, small stands that they will sit with, and they'll read the Quran, and it'll be provided in mosques or in homes and so on, where the book can be placed, and the, re the reader can sit there and read. So try and respect the concerns of when uh, handling a Quran around your Muslim friends, and try and keep the Quran that you use when speaking with Muslims in good shape. Now, another long-held belief is the Ijaz al-Quran. This is a theological doctrine of inimitability. It means the Quran is inimitable or that it is miraculous. Now, Ijaz al-Quran uh, appeared in the second half of the ninth century, and it was a technical term used for the inimitability or uniqueness of the Quran in content and form. The Encyclopedia of Islam uh, is the most academic uh, compilation of articles by hundreds of scholars of Islam written over the past 60 years. This uh, encyclopedia explains that disputes 
and discussions over Ijaz al-Quran, or the inimitability of the Quran, took place between 750 AD and 1000 AD. So why is this question of the inimitability of the Quran even being raised? Why are Muslims in the 7th and 10th centuries having to make claims that the Quran is miraculous and that there's no other books comparable to it? Well, one answer is that the Christian name St. John of Damascus in the 8th century was challenging Islam and was actually in the Caliphal courts and asking very important questions. St. John of Damascus would ask questions like, how can Muhammad claim that he is actually a prophet? What was Muhammad's miracle? Because to Christians, at that time, it was well known that prophets must have done miracles. They usually foretell future events and that God has revealed them to them and so on. So as a Christian, hearing about the Islamic religion, St. John of Damascus was concerned about this. And so two things made the uniqueness of the Quran crucial within Islam. First was the necessity to prove the mission of the prophet Muhammad. And second was the necessity to secure an authority for Muslim doctrine, law, and morality. These two needs to establish the authority of Islam could be met only by establishing the transcendental or miraculous character of this book, the Quran. And secondly, creating a doctrine about the singularity or miraculousness of Muhammad. And the reason uh, he was a unique prophet is because the Quran was developed to be his miracle. The implication was that the supernatural nature of the revelation of the Quran was primarily a justification for Muhammad's prophethood. In Surah 17, Ayah 90, we uh, see the statement that if men or jinn or genies were to combine their efforts, they would be incapable of producing anything equaling as much as a single surah or chapter of the Quran. So Muslims believe that their Quran have a, has a superior eloquence in, in style. It's a superior eloquence in style, and there are verses in the Quran which put out the challenge to anyone to produce a surah like it. Let me read for you uh, two of these surahs. For example, in Surah 10, Ayah 37 through 38, it reads, quote, And this Quran is not such as could ever be produced by other than Allah, Lord of the heavens and the earth, but it's a confirmation of the revelation which is before it, such as the Torah and the gospel, and a full explanation of the book, wherein there is no doubt from the Lord of the Alamin, uh, mankind, jinns, and all that exists, do they say, he, Muhammad, has forged it? Say, bring then a surah like it. Bring a chapter like unto it and call upon whoever you can besides Allah if you are truthful. Also, Surah 2, Ayah 23 reads, If you are in doubt concerning that which we have sent down, the Quran to our slave Muhammad, then produce a surah like it, therefore, and call your witnesses besides Allah if you are, truth it, if you are truthful. So produce a surah like it uh, if you believe that uh, the Quran is inferior, uh, is what they're saying. They believe there's no other piece of literature that competes with the Quran. There's nothing else that can compete with the Quran in its styles and its prose and its cadence. Uh, it can compete with the Quran in its ambiance, its beauty, or its eloquence. 
it's inimitable. And that means it cannot be compared with any other piece of literature in the world. Now, you yourself may have read the Quran before. I've had thousands of students that have gone through and read the Quran, uh, etc. You may have read it in your own language wherever you are in the world. And many will say that the Quran is not eloquent at all. In fact, all of my students, I've, I've never had a student that actually thought the Quran was eloquent in, in that sense. One of the goals of this uh, training is to get us as Christians to have an honest opinion about the book as you experience it. Uh, you don't have to believe me. You don't have to uh, uh, copy my ideas or, or things. I'm simply presenting my own research for you. But as you read the Quran for yourself, how do you personally develop an opinion of the book? You should tell your Muslim friends what you honestly think about it. If you, for example, fall asleep when you're trying to read it because Surah 2 is so long, it's a very long Surah, <laughs> it just jumps around so much, then say that. Stories never finish. A story begins with a new story. Uh, it leaves an awful lot to the imagination. The Quran already assumes that you know who the characters are and what the background is without giving you any of that background at all. It just mentions them. You may also come to see that there's repetition all the way through the book. But Mus what Muslims will say is that you need to read the Quran in its original language. If you read the Quran in its Arabic, in the Arabic language, and with Muslim commentaries and historical traditions, the Hadith and Tafsir and commentaries and so on, you would not have those problems. And you'll see its eloquence and miraculous nature and believe upon it. Now, the answer to that is very simple. If it was revealed only in the Arabic language, and we have to read it in the language of the Arabic, can this really claim to be a revelation, universal message of salvation of God to all mankind? Since only 3% of the global world population even speaks Arabic, uh, only 15% of Muslims totally in the whole world actually speak Arabic. Therefore, this is only for the Arab people. It's not actually for non-Arab speaking people. But I tell my Muslim friends that, that my God is bigger than that, and that the Bible has been translated many times into many languages all throughout the world in hundreds and thousands of languages because it is a universal message of salvation and it is transferable because God wants to communicate to mankind and to them. And so you can say that as well, and you won't have any problem with that. But this idea of producing a, a surah like it uh, is a very strong argument for Muslims. Uh, they believe that it's the miracle of Muhammad. Uh, as we stated, he has no other miracle to prove his prophethood, so therefore the Quran is central. And there were numbers of times uh, in, throughout the prophet's, uh, Muhammad's life where people would come to him and question his criterion. They, uh, they would ask, what is his authority for being a prophet? They would ask, what is his miracle he could provide? and would say, all prophets, prophets must prophesy, all prophets must be able to produce miracles. Where is your miracle? Show us right now. And Muhammad would respond to them that all of the prophets from before would prophesy and do miracles, yet you did not accept them, so don't expect me to do the same. So therefore, the Muslims are left with a real dilemma. What is Muhammad's miracle? What is his prophecy? 
And what did he do that was unique that would give him that authority? Well, the Quran is his miracle. And that is what they claim. That's what the Muslims claim. Producing a surah like it is very popular. Usually it comes at the end of a discussion. Uh, you're evangelizing a Muslim friend, uh, talking about the Bible, talking about the Quran. You disagree about various subjects. And at the very end, they'll say, as a kind of a final stamp, well, show me any other literature in the whole world that is equal to the Quran. How do you answer that? How do you answer that question? Once I was at the Finsbury Park Mosque in London, that's Sheikh Abu Hamza al-Masri's mosque. Uh, it's the most radical mosque in all of Europe. Uh, it's a place where many radical Sunni Muslims uh, gather to worship in the heart of London. Uh, certainly these were the ones who influenced the 7-7 bombers and these men were training to actually go in warfare throughout Northern Africa and different parts of the world. They were preparing themselves for battle as part of the Mujahideen or the fighters uh, of the Muslims. And one time, I was presented with this challenge to produce a surah like it. A Dawood came out and there was uh, maybe 50 Muslims that were surrounding uh, us at that time that we had gone into the, the mosque uh, with, the, with uh, three or four of us. <coughs> and they had moved the discussion, it had gotten a little bit rowdy in the mosque and we had moved the discussion out to the street and uh, my uh, f my friend there Dawood had responded okay well fine produce a, a surah like it and I said fine I will and I opened up to Psalm 23 and I read to all the Muslims that are around I, I did it like this I said listen to me the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And you know what the response was that I received? They go, wow, that was nice. <laughs> that was nice. And that's what I do. And you can do that as well. You can read it in any language. Tell them, read it in English, read it in Arabic, read it in Greek and Hebrew, in any language in the world. And that is far superior to anything that is in the Quran. For example, I would read something like Surah 109. Say ye that reject faith, I worship not which thee worship, nor will I worship that which I worship, and I will not worship that which ye have been wont to worship, nor will ye worship that which I worship, to you be your way and to me be mine. Well, that, that certainly is not as good as Psalm 23. By any stretch of the man, imagination, it's not superior in its literary style, it's not superior in its eloquence, the ambience of it, anything about 
is not inimitable compared to Psalm 23. Psalm 3 is much more beautiful than this surah. Uh, and we can ask them, you know, show me anywhere in the Quran that, that is, can compete with that. And I really think it elevates the Bible uh, and uh, takes up the challenge of God's word. When they're talking about its superiority, they're also talking about its beauty when it's heard in its form. They will hear the call from the minaret, which is the Quranic call to prayer. And uh, uh, they will hear it from the mosque, and it makes Muslims stop in awe. Uh, they hear the sung form of the Quran. It's so beautiful to them. And we have a response to that as well, that we find different kinds of music, uh, classical music, music, uh, worship music, and so on throughout the ages that bring tears to our eyes. We hear the beauty of poetry uh, from different kinds of music that makes us stop and puzzle over it for hours. It makes us think about our soul and, and, and its beauty of, of this kind of music and so on. And I know that a lot of that has to do with familiarity because I know that Muslims don't stop in their tracks when they hear that music and they don't think about it in the same way that I do. Uh, when we were in Turkey with some different missions teams, we'd been there three times, and every time uh, the mission team had heard the minaret that was next to the hotel we were staying in, the team that was with me, their response was not one of wonder, but uh, it sounded very unfamiliar, unfamiliar, and they didn't like the sound of the minaret. So a lot of that, a lot of that I know is familiarity and also the skills of the muezzin and, and so on uh, that is actually uh, speaking out that day from the minaret. So uh, we must never confuse the classical music with divinely inspired things. Uh, and neither are profound poems. I've uh, never heard American poets claim that their words were from God. So we should never confuse excellence or in that sense beauty with divinity. And that's the point. Now walk them, your Muslim friends through that and help them to understand that here is a comparison of Surah 9 with certain uh, chapters uh, of the Bible. Uh, read some of them to your Muslim friends. Take up the challenge and offer, uh, they offer to you to produce a Surah like it. In Surah 76, Ayah 29 through 30, we read, quote, Verily, this verse of the Quran is an admonition, so whoever wills, let him take a path to his Lord, Allah. But you cannot will unless Allah wills. Verily, Allah is ever all-knowing and all-wise. Verses 1 Timothy 2.4, quote, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Surah 24, Ayah uh, 2, it says, uh, The woman and the man guilty of illegal sexual intercourse flog each of them with a hundred stripes. Let not pity withhold you in their case, and a punishment prescribed by Allah. If you believe in Allah in the last day, and let a party of the believers witness their punishment. This punishment is for uh, unmarried persons guilty uh, of the above crime, but if a married person commits it, then the punishment is to stone them to death, according to the Sharia. 
versus John 8 and uh, John chapter 8. Verse 4, the scribes and the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him so they might give grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down in his fingers and he wrote into the ground. But when they persisted in asking, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin amongst you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote into the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So which do you think is better? When you look at Surah 9, Ayah 29, uh, reads, Fight against those who believe not in Allah nor in the last day, nor forbid that which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger Muhammad, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth is long among the people of the scriptures, the Jews and the Christians, until they pay jizya, a poll tax, uh, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued and humiliated. End quote. Verses 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong, suffer, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So what we're trying to do is to compare similar subjects in the Bible and the Quran, and it's apparent that the Quran is a uh, a uniquely 7th century piece of literature which reflects the Arab culture and its mentality at that time. Its eloquence does not prove that it is divine. Along these same lines uh, of the inimitability of the Quran is the claim of its superior, superior literary qualities. Now they make the Quran the standard for that. And if you recall our outline of Surah 2, you know that uh, that can easily be brought into question. Let me give you three different opinions of Quranic scholars and uh, those with opinions of hundreds of my past students about the Quran and its literary qualities. Uh, Dr. Theodore Noldecki uh, uses these words to describe his study of the Quran. Quote, chaotic, confusion, prosaic, stiff in style, tedious sermonizing, rhetorical, never metrical, superfluous verbiage, syntax betrays great awkwardness, uh, tiresome effects of its endless iterations, that the dogma turns a defective literary production into an unrivaled match masterpiece in the eyes of its believers, end quote. Salman Reinach uh, describes the Quran in this way. From the literary point of view, the Quran has very little merit. 
declamation, repetition, a lack of logic and coherence strikes the unprepared reader at every turn. It's humiliating to the human intellect to think that this mediocre literature has been the subject of innumerable commentaries and that millions of men are still wasting their time in absorbing it. Now, don't read that to your Muslim friends, but it's good for you to know about that and to know that people have different opinions of the Quran. People don't just read the Quran as saying it's eloquent, it's miraculous, it's inimitable. McClinic in Strong's Encyclopedia writes this, the matter of the Quran is exceedingly incoherent, the book evidently being without any logical order of thought either as a whole or in its parts. This agrees with the random and incidental manner in which it is said to have been delivered. McClinic and Strong. So it really depends on who is actually reading the book. If your friend says that the Quran has an unrivaled literary style, suggest uh, to your Muslim friend this, read Surah 2 in one sitting. Does it give them something? Do they walk away feeling fed or edified? Do they learn anything from it? Remember how it just skips around from all different kinds of chronological breakdowns. When you read the Quran, you'll find it start with Moses, it'll run up to Jesus, it'll go back to Abraham. You can see it jump from Cain to Abel, and it just goes all over the scriptures. It's, uh, the third claim of inimitability is <laughs> its claim that it's actually in pure Arabic. Now, this idea that it's in pure Arabic uh, Arabic is considered to be the language of heaven. If it's the language spoken in heaven, then it must be the oldest language in history. And that's what Muslims will claim. So this is one reason why the Quran is considered inimitable, because it does not have any corrupted words. It's written in this heavenly language, uh, the language of Allah. Uh, we've, it says we've revealed unto you an Arabic Quran. And let's look more closely at the language of the Quran. Now, languages in the world are split up into different groups. Through language studies, we learn that Arabic has a Semitic root. This means it actually comes from the same language group as the Hebrew language of the Bible. The written Arabic script derives ultimately from that of the Phoenician people. So Arabic actually has a point in history where it began. It began with the Phoenicians, of course. And so it has that Phoenician Semitic root and language. If it evolved, then it, can, it can't be the eternal language of heaven. And another interesting fact is that the time, uh, at the time of Islam, the written form of Arabic was not yet fully developed. Their alphabet was developed in consonants, but it lacked the vowel markings. And the way you know if a letter is a, vowel, is a vowel or a consonant is by the dots you place above or below the Arabic letters. Uh, you can take a look right here where you can see that the Quran uh, is from the 1924 text, has many dots and many vowels uh, on it. And you can see the rasm or the consonants that are going straight through there. But you can see the many markings that are there with this Quran. But... Uh, the dots uh, are above and below the text, and the problem is that these dots didn't exist with the Quran when they were written in the early Qurans. They were added at a much later date. And in later copies of the Quran, we actually have these dots. But the problem is that if the dots are not clear or too far from the letters, you can't actually read what it's saying. 
So a great many variant readings are possible according to the way that the Quran and the Arabic is dotted or placed in the text. Uh, we don't have a fully dotted, fully vowed Quran for over 324 years after the time of Muhammad. And so it can't be you know, a perfect Quran and the Arabic language is evolving. Now the word razum, uh, if written with different dots, gives at least five different words. So you can have uh, uh, three uh, a triconsonantal texts, and it can be uh, have different uh, dotted in different ways. But uh, you could have zanetum, which means you have fornicated. You can have zantum, which means you have adorned. You can have rabetum, which means you have educated. You can have ranetum, which you have looked at or you have walked heavily. Or you can have rabetum, which you have seen. So the Arabic has not existed forever in the spoken form or in the written form, and the dots have not existed in the written form for long, uh, for, for very long either. One scholar, uh, Michael, Dr. Michael Cook from Princeton University, asks whether Muslims are justified in adding these marks to God's word. When Muslims tell you that you need to read the Quran in the Arabic, it's important to point out to them they, they could not even actually read the Arabic Quran in its original form because it didn't have all these dots. It didn't have the short vowels, the fata, dama, kasra, and those early dots. They're almost entirely missing. Now, um, uh, the fact is that Muslims themselves could not even read the script. So again, if we're going to they require you to read uh, the Quran in the Arabic language, in its eloquence, in the Arabic, it would be good for, to, point, to point out to them that they cannot actually read it themselves. Muslims will also say that the Quran is written in pure Arabic words. Arabic is the language of heaven, and it's only in the language that, uh, that the Quran was revealed. But that's not the case. And there are actually three stages that the Arabic language went through uh, historically. First, Old Arabic existed in the third century before the time of Muhammad. Second, uh, the second stage was early Arabic. Uh, early Arabic existed from the third to sixth century AD, where hundreds of Aramaic words entered into the Arabic language during this period through Jewish and Christian contacts. Aramaic was a language that uh, Jesus spoke, and as you can recall from the life of Muhammad, there were Jews and there were Christians in Arabia, and so the earliest Arabic written texts seem to actually have been Christian inscriptions suggesting that, uh, uh, that the Arabic script or writing was actually invented by Christian missionaries. So if this was the case, then how did a written Arabic Quran exist for eternity in heaven? Third, the third stage of the Arabic uh, language is classical Arabic. In all, we find nine languages, uh, different languages in the Quran. Uh, there are also languages that did not eternally exist, but rather have evolved over time. They began in a certain time uh, when they were, uh, came in usage. Uh, but we have uh, Egyptian words, in the Quran, we have Akkadian words in the Quran, Assyrian words, Persian words uh, are found in the text of the Quran. <laughs> in fact, one scholar, Dr. Arthur Jeffrey, 
actually uh, had one book, which uh, his book, Foreign Vocabulary of the Quran, written in 1937. And in that book, he found that there was 275 foreign words in the text of the Quran. And that 75% of those foreign words that were in the Quran were actually in the language of Syriac. Syriac. So it's not at all in Arabic Quran. In fact, there are Arabic words that could have been used, but they were not actually used. Now here are some examples from different languages used in the Quran instead of Arabic. For example, there were Akkadian words. Adam and Eden is repeated 24 times instead of the Arabic insan or jana. Uh, there are Assyrian words, Abraham or Ibrahim, instead of the Arabic equivalent Abu Rahim. There are Persian words, sirat, meaning the path, instead of the Arabic equivalent of alteric. Why did they not use alteric? Or hur, uh, meaning uh, disciple, instead of the Arabic Telmith, or Firdus, meaning seventh heaven instead of the Arabic Jana. So is this a, a language that is eternal? Some Islamic writers teach that Adam, in the modern day, Adam actually wrote Arabic grammar books, three of them. Is that true? <laughs> Did Eve's husband actually write Arabic grammar books back in the garden? Well, it seems not. And there's no evidence that the Arabic of the Quran has existed throughout the entirety of human history. Also saying that the Quran is written purely in Arabic cannot be justified. If Muslims want to say that it's pure and justify it, then they have to deal with all these Arabic origins of these words and all the foreign vocabulary of the Quran that's in Arthur Jeffrey's book. And you can find that book on the internet. It's, uh, it's available uh, on sites there. So if Arabic has a history and is derived from a Semitic root, then how could it have eternally existed? If you place the language of the Quran within the confines of history, it falls to the ground. It is not the eternal Arabic word of Allah. But let's move away from the foreign vocabulary and look at another point, which is difficulties with the Arabic itself. One scholar uh, is working on the oldest Quranic manuscripts discovered. He's a good friend of mine, Dr. Gerd Puin, uh, and he is one of your professors for the Mission Muslim World University uh, um, courses in textual criticism of the Sana manuscripts. He's been working on these, uh, the oldest manuscripts in existence from the manuscripts from Sana Yemen. And he says this about uh, these manuscripts. Quote, the Quran claims for itself that it is mubin, or clear. But if you look at it, you'll notice that every fifth sentence or so simply doesn't make any sense. The fact is that a fifth of the Quranic text is just incomprehensible. There is much in it that is not Arabic at all, both in terms of its vocabulary and subject matter, and inspirations. Further, sources of obscurities are not only the large number of foreign words, but the new meanings that are pressed into its service. So what the scholar is suggesting is that not only do the foreign words cause problems for the reader in understanding what the Quran says, but so does the Arabic language. 
in our uh, next session, we'll continue on with this question of the foreign vocabulary and the problems that we're finding within the classical Arabic literature as it contributes to this question of foreign vocabulary and the Arabic language of the Quran. Thank you very much.